Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. We are here as part of Taxation Week at Active History, one of our many theme weeks that we do. And this one, we're very excited because it's been curated by some guests visiting editors. Uh, we have uh, Elsbeth Heeman and Shirley Tillotson as sort of the leaders of this Taxation Week and very excited to be joined via Skype right now. I am assuming from Halifax, Shirley Tillotson, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Yes, confirming. I am in Halifax. Okay, good. So this Taxation Week, uh, before we, you have a new book coming out on the history of taxation called Give and Take, The Citizen Taxpayer and the Rise of Canadian Democracy, which I want to talk about a little bit. But before we get into that, I want to talk about just the Taxation Week in, in general and where this idea came from and the overall project that you and Elizabeth have been working on on taxation. Taxation, a lot of people think, well... Every March or April, I do my taxes. And, you know, when I get my receipt, I look at the GST and I hate it and all that. And, and people think, I think, have a very negative understanding of tax, at least from their personal lives. And then here you are coming together and working on this larger project on the history of taxation. So where did the motivation for that project come from? Right. Well, uh, I launched the uh, research team, uh, which won a shirt grant uh, that included Elspeth Heeman, Jeff McNairn, Bruce Curtis, and Jerry Bannister, all of whom have produced something in the field. Elspeth and I are the only ones with books out currently, but my thought for this really came from uh, Mike Harris's victory in the Ontario provincial election in the early 90s. Uh, so much of the energy that seemed to bring him to power was anti-tax, was uh, tax resentment, tax rage in places. And many of my friends on the left, and, you know, I'm kind of roughly there, although like all university professors, I try to talk all the lines. <laughs> but many of my friends outside universities on the left were uh, really angry at working class and rural Ontarians for uh, not apparently understanding how important tax was in order to finance the welfare state. There was this sense that tax rage was false consciousness par excellence, that these uh, people were cutting off their nose to spite their face, voting for Mike Harris would lower, might lower their tax bill, but it would shrink the state and ultimately they'd see how wrong they'd been. And I thought, yeah, you know, I follow that logic, but I really dislike wheeling on false consciousness as an explanation of anything. I thought, you know, if people are angry about taxes, maybe there's something that we in the salaried middle class don't really understand about people's experience of paying tax. GST is the one you just mentioned now. You know, there's been attempts to make that hit smaller incomes less, but, you know, Payroll taxes were really the ones that were complained of by lower income people in the early 90s. The, they pay UI and, or EI as it's now called and never collect on it. That's just wrong. Right. So anyhow, 
you can say, you know, I understand the argument for why working class tax rate is wrong, but that was the kind of political moment that then made me turn in a scholarly direction to ask about um, why it is that Canadian historiography compared to virtually any other national historiography is so thin on on tax topics. Is it really possible that taxation has played so little a part in our political history in the reasons why people win or lose, parties win or lose elections? Is is that really been so far in the background? If it is, that fact itself is pretty interesting. In other words, if historians haven't missed anything, but it is actually true that Canadians don't talk about taxes during elections before the 1980s, say, that's kind of interesting. So there was a hole in political history. There was a, a problem in contemporary politics. And I thought there was an opportunity historiographically to do a project that would bring together political and social history, something that, again, many of us were talking about in the early 90s. And, it's you know, that's the, it takes a lifetime to sometimes to work through the problems that uh, that puzzle you. And so the idea that there might be a way of doing political history that would bring social history back in to political history also animated this project, seeing tax as the place where people encounter the state in a very direct way. And surely, as some of the old uh, tax scholars and tax politicians say, you know, the pocket is the sensitive nerve that makes someone take an interest in public affairs. That insight was also, I think, really foundational. How do we get political and social history back? What is it back together? What's a topic that would do that? And it looked like tax was a topic that would do that. The universality of taxing, right? Everyone has to engage with taxes at some point and, mm-hmm. and deal with it. And that the the lack of people writing about this at that time in, in history, I think is really interesting because it's one of these things that in my mind, maybe it's something we just take for granted as, you know, the old saying of death and taxes is the two certainties in life. And maybe that's a reason why people don't examine taxation or or didn't examine taxation in the past, because it's just there. Of course, it's there. And maybe there's no reason then to look at it. And it would certainly be my expectation mm-hmm. for why historians might have avoided it. But in, in looking back at the historiography at things like the the world wars and when taxation became an issue in terms of paying for war, how did people write about it within the larger historiography of, of those moments? Well, it's remarkable how little in the biographies of Borden or of King, how little attention the work of deciding and then justifying uh, new forms of taxation, how little attention that's gotten. Um, in the biographies of uh, R.B. Bennett, uh, during, you know, again, the Depression in another period where finding an adequate public revenue was extremely important. Uh, I had I talked to Larry Glassford. I talked to uh, I read Thompson and Seeger closely there really wasn't much there, and I didn't trust that that was an accurate representation of the amount of 
energy and and time and attention that those politicians would have paid to such a crucial question for their government's uh, success in the polls or their success in actually achieving the goals of funding the activities of the state. I just didn't didn't believe it. I talked to Michael Bliss once over the phone to say, there's really not a lot on tax in Northern Enterprise, particularly the income tax. Why is that, Michael? Surely, uh, with your kinds of commitments, you must have seen income taxes as important. And he said, I understand why, that particularly because of corporation taxes, formidable intellectual challenges in trying to understand it. He said he just found it too much and too big and too complex to integrate into Northern Enterprise. And I think that's probably a fair answer because even just doing my taxes, uh, like my 2015 taxes are still, have not still fully been processed. And, you know, I, I got income, that was when I was in Boston, but I also had Canadian income. And then my 2016 taxes, which included uh, working in China as well as the United States and Canada, they're a mess. I don't anticipate them being done for another like three or four years. I mean, I've submitted them, but you know, in terms of the process of going through CRA, and that's just mm-hmm. me who's one person. So to, <laughs> to think about going through and trying to understand the entirety of the taxation system, whether it be corporate tax, income tax, sales taxes, it seems international, like- uh, as you point out, is an area of Great complexity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I could understand why historians might say, you know what? No. Uh, <laughs> right. So, it's, it just seems very complicated. We, we address this in a couple of ways. David Tuff will tell you he still really doesn't know much about tax at the tex- technical level at all, that he's really writing about political culture and he's only looking at words, not at numbers. So that's one route to go. You know, this, you can, Whatever the truth about particular tax incidents, you can look at how people talk about it. You know, that's true with a lot of policy areas that the politics is about the moving around of symbolic material, not really explaining (laughs) how the policy (laughs) works on the ground. Sadly, perhaps, but that's true. Elspeth Heeman and I both took a a different route in that she and I are both convinced that tax administration is tax policy in many ways, that what actually uh, gets done to secure compliance, to enforce, to exhort, and that 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 is deeply what matters in terms of building that relationship to the state. And you can argue... I hint at this, it's not the main point of my book, but uh, it's it's there a bit in the chapters in the 50s and 60s. You could argue that uh, a government taxes well and successfully when people find it easy to comply. Hmm. So when it's, when it's actually not experienced as terribly difficult. And the, the, the big success of tax since World War II, the income tax since World War II in Canada, is... It's relative ease of compliance for people who have a standard wage job, people who have a standard salary job. That's a lot of Canadian taxpayers, and and for a lot of Canadian taxpayers, 
the tax is taken off source. There's not a lot they can do to reduce or avoid. They can you know, pay it into their RRSP or something like that. But it's, it's meant to be easy for those that large population of tax filers. The people who find it difficult are the small business people, as we're hearing these days. Anyhow, I'm, I'm wondering a bit but, uh, no, about but the difficulty question. The question is, you know, so we chose to study it closer to the ground, to study enforcement and compliance. And our way of making it easier for ourselves was to not even try to do everything. Which you makes know, sense, yeah. Yeah, you just say, look, these are the episodes I'm going to study. This is how they fit into a larger arc of Canadian history. There are, as I say somewhere in my book, probably the introduction, there are lots of interesting gaps here. And we really hope that what we've done is provided a big narrative that will allow other scholars, students to come along and say, okay, Tillotson might be right, but what about this? Right. Yeah. And that's where we hope we've really uh, contributed something to innovation in Canadian history. With, with respect to the book itself, it, in, in just looking through it, you sent me the page proofs and, and everything looks great. And, and certainly the early reviews are rather positive for it, which is always exciting. It's from UBC Press and, and in their little bio of it, they, they mentioned that you start with the 1917 war income tax and then you take us through the 1960s. And I'm just wondering why start there? And, and is it really the rise of income tax and sort of the permanence of that or or was it more sort of that flashpoint and that there was such debate at that time about the idea of taxation Heman and I talked about this as we were devising the research uh, proposal and I, I don't know I guess I don't see that as a difficult choice to pick 1917. We spent a lot of time as our projects developed over talking about the hinge there, how her story would connect up to mine or not. On the face of it, doing 1917 as the period marker, it's kind of an obvious point. The income tax is now the major revenue source for the federal government. At that point, customs were what happened in the move from customs revenue to income tax revenue in the relationship of citizens to the state? Customs tax revenue is a kind of a, a hidden tax. It's always difficult to know how much in the price of a good is actually a tax that you're paying and how much of it is related to the cost of production of the good. Right? So you kind of don't have to know much as a government about people's work and jobs and, and ways of spending and needs in order to tax the import of goods. And the taxpayer doesn't have to know much about whether the tax level is too high or too low. Uh, they have to buy the goods anyway, and they're going to they're gonna pay it. Right. Income tax is utterly different. You know, uh, it's a tax where the government has to constantly observe the economy and uh, consumption and production to see how uh, to make sure that the tax is falling on surplus to some extent. And it's a tax that business people in particular see themselves paying. They write a quarterly check. Anyone who is earning without having taxes deducted at source in their paycheck writes a check to the government. 
So the shift from a customs tax to an income tax is the central uh, source of revenue for the federal government is a tax is a shift from this uh, from tax being kind of undemocratic in the sense of not engaging a citizen to a tax that's deeply democratic that tells you what you're paying and and the and has to be justified because you notice it it's it's in your face like you can't really hide from income tax yeah but that being said you know you mentioned earlier about language and and looking at language within these issues how then does at the time when they're coming up with income tax i mean if you look at income tax right now the government puts out these like these huge guidelines as to how you're supposed to do it and what the rules are during the war and and when this really starts up how is the government implementing it and how do they make the determination of how much they're going to tax off income and then how do they use the language to justify and to get people to comply because you mentioned compliance earlier and that income tax generally speaking at least contemporarily is very easy to comply with so so i'm i'm curious about those the mechanisms and how they put those in place many of the answers to your questions are actually in heman's book okay. tax order and good government yeah. not in mine insofar as the kind of architecture of a progressive rate income tax or graduated income taxes they call it that the the logic behind that the the technical practices were all devised before 1917 britain had had a progressive rate income tax uh through since the crimean war the united states had developed one and implemented one in 1895 it was then defeated and reintroduced in uh 1913 so we weren't making it up from old cloth and the the federal income tax was similar to but different from a, a kind of income tax that had previously existed and when we talk about the income tax now i think one of the things that people will find most surprising is that widely in the 19th century and and well into the 20th century there were municipal income taxes that were not like the federal income taxes today they were very simple they had many of them had no exemptions you paid on the first dollar you earned there was no adjustment for family size there was no uh deductions against in 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 these sort of personal ones in municipalities no deductions against you know your mortgage interest or your contributions to a saving plan you know, old 19th century income taxes were were pretty brutal <laughs> and they they fell disproportionately believe it or not on the poor hmm. So one of Heman's arguments is that when you look at 19th century taxation all in the consumption taxes the these old style simple income taxes they actually the tax systems redistributed income from the poor and gave it to the rich <laughs> so the reverse of how we think of a, a modern progressive rate income tax which is David Tuff puts it is supposed to make the rich a little bit less rich and by funding social income in the form of public services is supposed to make the poor a little less poor. Mm-hmm. So the 19th century income tax one of the reasons it fell so heavily on wage earners was that one of the ways that the state 
assess what your income was. The statute just said, and employers shall turn over their payroll information to the tax authority. So you taxed exactly what people earn if they work for a wage. Whereas if you ran a business, you had to tell the tax authority how much uh, profit your business made. And as perhaps most of your listeners will know, but it still has to be said, business income is an artifact of an accounting process where you describe what expenditures you incurred in order to earn that business income. And hopefully you do that honestly. (laughs) Well, they say that any good accountant can turn a, a profit into a loss. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the reasons why many people regarded the 19th century income tax and frankly the federal income tax for about its first 20 years as quasi-voluntary because it's self-assessed for business and farm income. And so, therefore, uh, you kind of decide how much you want to pay when you decide what to tell the government about how much you've earned. Okay, so... That early income tax and the federal income tax, you know, the forms are, you know, a page long and it just requires that essentially you give a a business statement, uh, you know, profit and loss statement. It's not fair in what I would say um, a modern observer would regard as fair because whether or not you tell your whole income is entirely up to you and so rewards the liar and penalizes the honest man as they used to say. Uh, that kind of that was the big charge against income tax. When people opposed income tax in the in the 19th and 20th century, one of the things that they harped on is that it was so easy to evade that mm. it was not productive, and it kind of uh, rewarded deceit. And really, is that what you want in a model of public <laughs> revenue raising? Maybe not. So what changes? in the 1950s is that with the federal income tax, and by then the provincial income taxes are pretty much integrated into the federal income tax, although there's lots of struggle about that in the 50s. What changes in the 50s is that the federal government builds an enforcement capacity, and that's when people might reasonably start to feel like they're paying income tax not at all voluntarily. They have to pay it. It's legal. It's enforced. Reducing your description of your income is a risky business, and it's it's just prudent to be honest by the time uh, you get into the 1960s, for most of us. I, I would have to assume, though, that that changes people's perception of it, that when you have the government not only having the taxation, but now hiring people to actually enforce it, that changes the relationship between the government and the taxpayer, does it not? Yes. So, I mean, I came into this significantly as a historian of the welfare state. And part of what I wanted to do, and this is something that Jim Struthers has long done as well, is to uh, correct the widespread and often uh, uh, conservative perspective that uh, everyone was in favor of the modest welfare state that was introduced 
uh, in the 1950s. And, you know, it was only in the 60s when people went crazy with this business that we had any kind of objection to the welfare state. No, it's constantly con contested. Some of the reasons for contestation are, are not to do with tax, but are to do with views of autonomy and responsibility and what people should be like and what the Canadian economy was like. No one needs to be poor in Canada was kind of the, right. you know, leftover view in the 1950s uh, from conservatives. But part of the objection to the welfare state, part of the resistance to the development of adequate programs and the maintain, maintenance of programs was uh, tax resistance. It's like, I'm paying for this. I don't understand why I should pay for it. Right. And that view is, is not uncommon in the 50s. There's also Richard Pound, who's written the um, history of Canada's first and, and probably still most important tax law firm, Steichman Elliott. Pound says, you know, there was a prolonged and effective campaign of tax avoidance on the part of well-to-do Canadians in the 50s because they objected to the percentages of income tax at the higher uh, marginal categories, right? Mm, yeah. So the size of the shovel that got, was being put into our stores, he said, motivated uh, uh, campaigns of uh, tax avoidance effectively uh, shielded uh, income by turning it into wealth. And, and at that point, uh, wealth in the form of capital gains wasn't taxed. So the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hostility brewing uh, in the 50s and 60s um, that flashes and flourishes later on, but it's it's not like we're all one happy, democratic, enjoying the affluent society crowd in the 50s. It's interesting that you say that, too, because it, it seems like, at least now, the idea when people talk about the government spending money on something, they say they're spending my money yeah. as opposed to the collective money. And and I, I have to imagine that that is relatively new, especially because of this the, the enforcement of the taxation that if I'm doing it voluntarily, it or not necessarily voluntarily, but I, I'm not being there, there's not this strict enforcement and this oversight by the government and that it's largely to a certain degree enforcement is on an honor system, mm -hmm. then I, I don't feel as as protective of it, but it's sort of that forced of it. It's like a kid this might be a terrible analogy, but like a kid with a toy who's the toy is there, but then when somebody else takes it from them is when they really care about it a lot more. <laughs> if I can use that terrible connection, yeah, yeah. like, but when it, when it feels like something is being taken from you, then you care about it a lot more than when you're giving it away or feel that yeah. way. It is now absolutely essential that if you're going to have a robust public revenue, politicians, need to constantly be doing a sales job for the usefulness of the state. And it is extremely distressing if, if they fail to do that, because right. that is the, you know, it's really their job to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, 19th century kinds of relatively hidden taxation, um, you know, McDonald, uh, human argues, I think uh, rightly, uh, McDonald didn't need to kind of sell the federal government hard 
didn't need to educate citizens about what the federal government did. You know, it could be government by the executive committee of the bourgeoisie and everything would be fine. Right. You know, when you start having to, and this is, you know, this is even true right after the First World War, when you have a income tax that starts to reach closer to um, subsistence for some people, well, then you really do have to sell the state. Politicians, and particularly prime ministers, uh, do a good job in saying, oh, our country is prosperous, uh, we're very successful. They're speaking in some cases, well, often I think to the market for Canadian government bonds, like, oh, yeah, no, Canada's doing great. But as well as speaking to potential purchasers of government bonds, they need also to speak to taxpayers. Chrétien government did that in the, you can really, you can, at times of fiscal crisis, you can see governments stepping up to do that. I remember a series of ads uh, from the Chrétien government, uh, it might have been the early 90s recession, Mm-hmm. That was a pivotal point for me where, you know, you'd see ads for the Coast Guard and just nothing except for saying, look, we have a Coast Guard. Isn't this great? Your tax dollars at work. Right. <laughs> and they do that, too, on I notice at least in Ottawa on the bus, on the city buses. Um, really? Yeah. They say, like, take your trash with you because your tax dollars pay to clean the bus. So like, oh, yeah. So in terms of municipal, I think yeah. municipal governments are much more active than federal governments in this kind of you get for your money right. uh, narrative with your annual tax bill. You always get in Nova Scotia and I think in Ontario, if I recall correctly, a breakdown of exactly what that tax dollar buys. Right. And, and like in terms of public services. And, and I know in Ontario, I, I would assume this happens elsewhere, when you vote, you get to decide or indicate whether you want the tax that you pay for education to go to the public board or to the Catholic board. Yeah, no, that's an Ontario thing. Okay. So, so like, <laughs> but, but that gives some ownership over it, right? Yeah. Which creates a, a greater feeling or, or, or somehow you have control over what that money is going to. Yeah. Now, there's a, a sort of a theoretical argument in, in the tax scholarship uh, about whether tax that is justified on the grounds of benefit mm-hmm. ends up sort of playing into a kind of a tax resist- resistance where a very narrow notion of what counts as a benefit to me governs compliance. So, you know, I don't have children in the school, so why should I pay a school tax? You know, well, because you benefit from having educated population and therefore you should. So exactly where benefit lies can end up, you know, fueling unwise and ill-informed tax resistance. No question. But I think more broadly, you know, ability to pay, which is usually what's offered as the other kind of rationale for how much tax you pay. Ability to pay is right in terms of a broad idea of fairness. The dollar that the person who earns a hundred thousand loses to tax uh-huh. is is less costly to them than the dollar that someone who was earning ten thousand right. loses to tax. Uh, so you know, in terms of justifying uh, tax ability to pay is important as a standard of fairness. But I don't think we ever. And here I'm a bit of an outlier. I do say this and I argue this in the book. I'll be interested to see what people say. I don't think we ever lose a sense that benefit is, in fact, part of what we uh, need to keep in mind when we accept 
our tax obligations. In in what sense? Like the fact that when I go and pay or, or when I pay my taxes and I file the taxes, I should be conscious of the fact that the, the roads get plowed and uh, yeah. the trash gets taken and, and that can go to the doctor for a physical and not like that kind of stuff. Like that, that, that should that. always be conscious in my mind. All that, and also, and here's, you know, again, a place where friends on the left might kind of wonder what I'm saying, but also, if you think of it as public revenue rather than your tax dollars, uh, yeah. even if you do that shift, you should still, as a citizen, be thinking, is it being spent wisely? Are our public services well run? Are our politicians corrupt or honest? You should not only seek benefit, but you should take ownership in the sense of, the fact that being a taxpayer is not just being selfish. It is also being a citizen. It is also thinking, okay, I contribute. That buys me a voice. Certainly in, in Ottawa, you can find many examples of government waste, uh, I think, yeah. just, just yeah. In, in terms of the public space when you walk yeah. around. Motorcades, they shut down Wellington for these motorcades. And I, I never understand really why a politician can't just sit at a red light for two minutes. It makes no sense. So so in, if I'm hearing you right, that I should be upset about something like that, not from a personal sense that my tax money is, is contributing to that, but rather that the community as a whole is not fully benefiting from the taxation that yep. is paying for that. That's where the anger yep. or outrage should come from. Yep. And so that then leads to a greater democratic state as because yeah. it's, it's I mean, more of a collective it's a a function of democratic citizenship to not only to contribute but to then care about how that public revenue that you've helped to produce is is used often conservatives are like uh i hate taxes because you know government just wastes it all you know i'd rather spend it myself and uh, government is just a giant waste machine and I think that's a caricature, <laughs> as I hope. <laughs> but, you know, but it's not entirely wrong in the sense that there, that you do need the office of the auditor general. There's, right. there's lots of evidence. Anyone who's studied politics in the 19th and early 20th century knows, can provide all sorts of examples of corrupt spending of people getting their way by using private citizens getting their way by using private money uh, to direct politicians into the wasteful spending of public money paying their friends much more than their friends work is worth and and assigning public contracts to people who will uh, spend it badly so Part of the problem of, I mean, it's a little bit related to uh, Michelle's Iron Law of Oligarchy. There is in the world of democratic institutions a constant tendency for the elite of any political movement or political party to distance themselves from uh, the rank and file. And it's just, you know, you see it in the union movement, you see it everywhere, right? And it's, you know, so that's that's part of the work of being a citizen is to be paying attention to that. And it's part of work of having good institutions that uh, those temptations are always being guarded against. It's no reason to not pay your tax. Right. It's a reason to to care about and be active in the scrutiny of how tax is paid. 
in that sense though in in creating this the that collective one of the things that that i've i don't think i really understand and people have tried to explain it to me and i just haven't been able to, to understand if the point of this is is partly a democratic exercise why does a flat tax not make sense then because if everyone is paying the same percentage of income to a tax then that strikes me is it, it, it we get away from the the idea of if, if you want to call it class warfare or or whatever it is like everyone is paying the same percentage and then we're all in that together. The, the idea of people who make over a certain amount pay higher percentage than people with a low. I, I understand the actual rationale from a, mm -hmm. from a human like who, who can afford to, to pay more tax. But from the collective democratic experience, it seems that the different tax brackets run counter to that and that a flat tax might be more effective in creating that, that community sense. This is certainly a view that uh, John Stuart Mill held that view. One of the Department of Finance's first tax experts, uh, Ken Eaton, uh, 1934 to 57 in the Department of Finance, uh, held that view. And uh, so you're, you're in kind of distinguished <laughs> company uh, there. And... It's true that resistance to progressivity in the rate fuels much of the tax avoidance that creates this kind of con body of, of uh, law and, uh, and some of the administrative costs of uh, tax collection. So I'm not real committed to the progressive rate income tax insofar as it is constantly under assault. It is kind of fragile. But where I guess I think I'm still with it, and I think it's uh, right and something worth defending, is that to have a rate low enough to be affordable on the lowest income earners so that you know what was it you know maybe it's 10 percent and so they're only paying a hundred dollars a year i mean it's it's going to be hard but maybe they could do it you know uh then that rate is so low in terms of what someone at a higher income rate or income could pay that that really sharply limits the public revenue. And so it does come down to a view that it's not only fair in terms of the marginal utility of the additional dollars that you're taking from the well-to-do, but it's also useful in terms of funding a state that can do all the things we've decided a state should do. Sort of all of its forms, right? And like from national defense all the way down to plowing the, the streets. Like in that sense that, that maintaining the progressive rate is essential in terms of just a cost benefit analysis. Yeah. Well, I mean, the municipal services are funded by flat rates. Right. Uh, you know, property taxes. Those are flat rate taxes. Sure. Yeah. And uh, we can see what happens with those when we see, you know, people losing their property to uh, because they haven't been able to afford 
municipal income tax or municipal property taxes. Right. Although even municipalities now have some kinds of uh, low income exemption rate, uh, so you can you can be relieved of some measure of your property tax if, say, as an elderly pensioner who owns a reasonably nice house now no longer has much of an income you can be relieved from municipal property tax. But with the exception of those concessions to outright poverty, the municipal property tax bears much more heavily on a poorer person than on a richer person, right. taking into account that the property value of the richer person's home will be, will be greater. Still, the, in terms of percentage, the impact on their income that's available to pay uh, their property tax will be higher on the... Uh, lower income tax ter- uh, person. And in Halifax, we've tried to, in municipal tax reform, to sort this out and find some way that we can have enough money to pay for the snow pullout clearance, which we really is terribly underfunded <laughs> in Halifax, <laughs> unlike Ottawa. Um, the But, you know, you can't raise the property tax without creating hardship at the lower end. So that's the same kind of thing that would happen with a flat rate income tax for the functions of the province and the federal governments mm-hmm. where the the revenue needs for what we've decided we need to to do which includes things that uh, like um you know provincial social assistance still kind of direly underfunded <laughs> yeah. uh, education universities Uh, You know, elementary schools, all of those either solely provincial or mixed jurisdiction or federal functions, you know, would be really much less well funded in a flat rate regime. So there, there has to be then that balance between maintaining the the funding to be able to support all these things, while at the same time not creating too much of a burden on the public, on the taxpayer. So yep. that that people can still live and be successful, and actually, a, a an example recently that came up that isn't actually related to tax, but the the guy who just bought the Houston Rockets paid like two point four billion dollars or something, and that was about seventy percent of his net worth. Mm-hmm. And people said, "Well, seventy percent of your net worth that's a lot, but seventy percent of his or thirty percent of his net worth is still like seven hundred or eight hundred million dollars." So mm-hmm. he'll be fine, whereas somebody paying 70% of the net worth who's worth $100,000, it's a little different, even though the percentage is the same. So the actual yeah. the actual way in which that manifests itself in the person's daily life d- does depend on how much money you have. Yeah. Now, uh, here you're also uh, – one of the things that's become so clear to me in, out of studying this history is a difference between net worth and income, between wealth – and income, uh, yeah. and that a lot of people are really often confused. One of the things that disturbs people who have wealth, who have property, who have investments and that generate a return on investment, that generate an income, they worry that if they are taxed at too high a rate on that income, then they have to sell some of their property in order to meet their income tax obligation. That's what they mean by a confiscatory tax. Mm. It's a tax that's not just on the annual flow, but actually, uh, for one reason or another, reaches into their wealth. And uh, that's been, you know, Heeman's book is very much about that 
tension between wealth and income and and mine speaks to it only in the history of whether or not to tax capital gains. I don't want to lose your point that your your point rightly that the cost to someone of 30% or 70% of a very large sum is is different in terms of the impact on their business activities and their consumption and their life. But I, I do want to underscore that for a long time in Canada, we taxed property only at the municipal level and in this flat rate kind of way. And we taxed income after it was eliminated in the, in the forties from municipal level. We taxed income provincially and federally without taxing a certain kind of income that was people said, no, no, you can't tax that because it's really wealth, not income. That's capital gains, right? Right. When you have something and you sell it and you make a profit on selling that property, you have made a capital gain. You've Mm -hmm. gotten a return on your capital investment. And for a long time, that was forbidden in Canadian tax. Now we tax half of it uh, when you sell, uh, and there's lifetime capital gains exemptions and all kinds of things, which most young people don't have to deal with because they don't have any property and wealth, <laughs> but uh, older people start to notice it. <laughs> right, yeah, and and things like you now with the TFSAs, the tax-free savings account, and mm-hmm. RSP, like there's all these different things that are related to taxation and income tax, and it, it can be hard to to follow at times, which yeah. I, which is why I think it's so good to have a historical basis yep. in, in in these issues. So, just as a, a last question about the the book is 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 this if I read or when I read this book, or <laughs> when anyone reads the book, yeah. will will that will it make me feel better about being taxed? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question. <laughs> I think it might. I don't know is. That was uh, my goal. Mm-hmm. You know, when uh, you are a good historian and you are not asking me to tell you what the lessons of history are, <laughs> but we know what they are. They're kind of don't panic. This has right. happened before. You know, it's complicated. People work it out. You got to pay attention. Don't panic. You might be wrong. You might, your view that uh, in this case, the if you think that all tax is coercion and the taxpayer is the helpless victim of a predatory state, I think you should come out of this book going, actually, taxpayer resistance is sometimes useful, sometimes effective, and uh, our tax system is actually a product not of some arbitrary government who doesn't understand anything, but it's the product of a conversation, sometimes hard-fought, involving courts and lawyers, but nonetheless a negotiation between the collective life as represented by government and our individual wants, needs, and preferences. That um, the only people who kind of won't find the book interesting, I suspect, are pure libertarians. I just have no patience right. for them. I don't think they live in the real world. Right. But for the rest of us who understand that politics is a matter of, you know, a contest of wills, of organization, of different priorities, of being, uh, it's a, it's an ongoing struggle that 
none of us are really exempt from. If you understand that, you know, we live in a world in which politics matters, then I hope that what you will, anyone would see from the stories that I tell and that Heman tells is that the parties to the struggle may vary. Sometimes it's the rich defending themselves against the tax state. Sometimes it's the poor defending themselves against the tax state. Sometimes it's the middle class defending themselves Mm -hmm. against the tax state. But whatever the parties and the coalitions and uh, that are engaged in this struggle, the result is an expression of democracy in its best sense. (laughs) People doing things together to try to achieve efficiently and fairly a a collective life. I think that's a very positive or a very good way to look at something that very often can feel arbitrary uh, and and arbitrarily enforced. So with the Taxation Week, for anyone who hasn't been to Active History yet to read all the taxation stuff, what what should people expect when they go read the, the posts that are up there? We've concentrated a little bit on 1917 because of the anniversary. David Tuff opens the series with a kind of uh, rabble-rousing description of 1917 as a point where we got an income tax because the people were pissed off and they made it happen. Um, You know, Tuff is a great writer. He has he's so epigrammatic. We have both him at the beginning and at the end. At the end, he uh, reminds us that, you know, we have the tax system that you get if you don't like talking about taxes. (laughs) Uh, You know, he really urges us, I think, effectively to understand that we have agency as citizens of a democracy and and that it has been used and can be used to do uh, the work of social justice. Now, Elspeth, Heman's piece gives us a flavor of many of the things that she does in her book. She, she, one of the great things about her book is the way she shows how different kinds of inequality in the 19th century are reinforced in the tax system and are deployed in some kind of scary ways in tax politics. 1917 is one of those moments where for the Borden Union cabinet to prevail in the election of 1917, uh, they have to disparage French-speaking Quebec as tax dodgers just as much as they are conscription dodgers, falsely, distortedly, whatever. So she um, she asks us to appreciate how the late 19th century was a, uh, a moment in which Canadians, Canadian society was very unequal, but that in a whole bunch of ways, often coming up from the municipal level, real progress was made towards a more just tax system. And then I do two pieces, one that is a kind of comparison between Canadian tax culture and American tax culture, in which I argue that ours is a whole lot more unruly than you'd think from popular culture images. But in the end, maybe we do have a somewhat more reasonable uh, view of tax. And the second piece is um, my uh, applying of some uh, history to points of the current tax debates, the question of how family relationships have been used within the federal income tax by people to legally or not quite so legally reduce their uh, tax. So I 
uh, probably in an inflammatory way, suggests that the tax law always needs to be changed. It, stuff happens where our governments have to look hard to see whether what was initially legal and equitable might now be legal and inequitable. Hmm. Um, and family stuff is income sprinkling is one of the places where uh, we're seeing that kind of move now, I think. Sure, yeah. So so there's a lot of really great stuff. Uh, we encourage everybody to go to Active History. Check out the Taxation Week. It is running the week of September the 18th, uh, all weeks, uh, Taxation Week. And if you're listening to this after the week of September the 18th, the post will still be there. That's the beautiful thing about the Internet. Nothing ever goes away. So uh, you can go back and look at some of those posts. So the two books that we, we've mentioned the most, of course, that are part of this larger project. Elspeth Heeman's book, Tax, Order, and Good Government, A New Political History of Canada, 1867 to 1917. That dropped in the summer with an official release date of June the 1st. And, uh, of course, our guest Shirley Tillotson's book, Give and Take, The Citizen Taxpayer and the Rise of Canadian Democracy, drops at some point in October uh, with no firm date as yet. We know uh, they're promising October 15th, and although I don't know the subtitle of David Tuff's book, uh -huh. uh, his book is, uh, I think, proposed to appear in print in January, okay. UBC Press, uh, and the short title is The Terrific Engine. Oh, that's a great title. So we would encourage everybody to check all those out. And, and it's it's really exciting because this is a, a new form of Canadian political history with a, a good mix of the social and because, you know, everyone's involved in this. So so it's a very exciting movement or, or development in the Canadian historiography. So we check, uh, encourage everybody to check all of that out. And we thank Shirley Tillotson for joining us from Halifax this morning. Shirley, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. It was fun. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, HistorySlam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.